Hello, welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game, and occasionally a 5200 game, and see if that story bites as bad. My name is Bill, this is episode 305. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. Glug, 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 glug. Ah, just cracked open a cold one, and I'm ready to talk about Atari games. Okay, so the cold one is a Pepsi. This episode's sponsored by Pepsi Cola. Not really, but I'm open. I think I went on and on last episode about how I don't drink a lot of pop, or soda, if you like. But I was at a thing yesterday where they had sort of a box lunch kind of deal, and it came with uh, a can of Pepsi, and I didn't drink it. So I had it today, and I thought, hey, I paid for that. I'm going to drink it, even if it is bad for me because I'm an American. I hope all is going well with you. Spring has sprung again this weekend as I'm recording. It's like sunny and stuff, and I go outside, and there's like new flowers in the yard, like even flowers I don't remember having planted, and there they are. And I think it freaks my dog out a little bit, but my dog's a puppy and everything freaks him out a little bit. So uh, that's fair. So I hope everything's good where you're at, and that uh, if you're into spring, the springing of that season is a good thing for you. I don't do a lot of Atari news on this show. It's a fairly current and frequently occurring show, right? Every other week. Uh, But I don't usually spend a lot of time on the news. However, one thing did catch my eye. As you guys know, and as many of you probably are as well, I am a fan of both Atari and Lego. And it turns out there is some sort of unholy merging of the two happening. Of course, you know, PlayStation, Xbox, whatever, have had Lego versions, Lego Star Wars games, or Lego Harry Potter, or that Dimensions in Time, not Dimensions in Time, Lego Dimensions, whatever it was called, uh, a while back when my kids were younger, we had a bunch of the little figures and, and would play the games and stuff. But now, there apparently is an actual physical Lego thing being created where you can build your own Atari 2600 in Lego. A celebratory Lego-style build coming in August in recognition of the console's 40th slash 45th anniversaries, according to German Lego fan site Promo Bricks. The article I'm looking at is from Polygon, and they uh, are taking an article from Promo Bricks. According to this article, translated via Google, this is a playset featuring a buildable Atari VCS deck with a scene from Activision's seminal hit Pitfall by David Crane, obviously. Video gaming's first third-party made-for-consoles blockbuster. I don't know if that's a, a debated point or not, but that's what's in this article. Console originally launched in 77, which would make it the 45th anniversary, but it was rebranded the VCS in 82, which makes it the 40th anniversary of that. Five years after Alan Alcorn and Nolan Bushnell installed the first Pong coin-operated cabinet at a bar in Sunnyvale, California, a 50th anniversary for good, good measure. Promo Bricks suggested that the fold-out scene of Pitfall should be movable using the PlayStation. Uh, God, I can't talk today. What is in this Pepsi? Using the playset's joystick replica. In 2020, Lego launched a commemorative Nintendo Entertainment System brick set, including a nearly life-sized representation of the console, a Super Mario Bros. gamepad, and an adorable wooden-legged TV with analog dials and rabbit ear antenna as a monitor. Lego Atari 2600 has a set number 10306. Atari 50th Anniversary Gaming Console and will sell for $199.99, according to Promo Bricks. That price in the U.S. is about $10 more in whole dollars than the Atari VCS's original suggested retail price when it launched in $77. $189.95 in Jimmy Carter money is about $900 today. So, are you guys going to pitch one of these up? And if you do, of course, send pictures. 
if you would like to buy one for your favorite podcaster, well, I mean, who is that person to stop you? So that's pretty cool. I don't know if I'll drop $200 on it, honestly, but I certainly would accept it as a gift from any family member who might be listening. All right, so what else is going on? Got a couple comments on the Patreon. Jose, my best friend in the world, commented, It's so good to see you enjoying that system, Bill, meaning the 5200 that he provided. It's so funny you chose one of the hardest games other than Robotron 2084 due to the dual joystick thing. He's referring to um, Base Dungeon, which I played last episode. I still, he says, haven't played either one of those games on my Atari 5200, but you might just inspire me to dig them out and try them. We'll do it, uh, Jose. Uh, It was fun. I have not tried Robotron 2084 for the 5200. I liked it very much, as many, many people do, for the 7800, but I may have to look for it for the 5200. Space Dungeon, if you heard the episode uh, last time, uh, I enjoyed. It's a little frustrating, but uh, I enjoyed it. I'm not a fan of the dual joystick thing, but, I mean, it is what it is. I am enjoying the system, uh, as you can tell, because I'm playing another game this episode. Uh, Coming up, spoiler, we're going to be playing Kicks later in the episode. So, uh, thanks for that, Jose. I also got a message from supporter and close personal friend of the podcast, Sean. Hi, Sean. He was trying to be helpful because I, I think I was speculating last episode when I announced what the game would be this time. I was speculating about how exactly you say the title, QIX, and he wrote, regarding the pronunciation of the next feature, Dan the Flyer will give you the answer. And then he uh, attached a link, which I'm opening right now. It is a, uh, a link to the Arcade Flyer archive, and they have a flyer with a picture of the, uh, of the character kicks, or the random moving flashes of color. On the screen, it says, get your kicks from Taito. And then he's correct. Helpfully, at the bottom of this little poster flyer thing, there's a, a footnote that says, pronounced kicks. So thanks for that, Sean. I have, if you notice, I have been saying kicks throughout this episode, and that is largely because of your helpful email that I got a while back. So thank you for that. If you know Sean, you can always rely on Sean to help with pronunciations and punctuation issues. Uh, he's a good one for that. He knows about games too, I guess, a little bit. But mostly it's the punctuation and pronunciation thing that we rely on Sean for. So thank you. I will get to kicks in a minute. But first, we have some other unfinished business. Specifically, a voicemail. I love it when we get a voicemail. We don't get a lot of them here on the podcast, but uh, really, that's your fault, guys. Um, because every episode, for crying out loud, I give you the phone number, 563-265-1978. And I promise you, every time, I'm not going to answer the phone. You don't have to talk to me. Talking to people is icky, so you don't actually have to talk to me. But you can leave a message. doesn't cost you anything. Honestly, it doesn't cost me anything either, uh, in money or time. It's a free number to me. I, it takes no time for me, because, like I said, I'm not going to answer the phone. And you can share in words rather than doing all that typing. Because, you know, we type a lot, right? We type at work, a lot of us. Probably all of us, right? Because even if you have a largely physical job, there are inevitably times where you got to email somebody or you send a text or this or that. So all of us type a lot. So what I'm saying to you is you can leave a message with your voice. And you don't have to talk to me. It's awesome. So Kim, listener Kim, hi Kim did just that. And even better, he was short and to the point. Now all I have to do is find it. Talk amongst yourselves for a moment. Birds do it 
Thanks for that, Kim. Now I'll explain to people what you're talking about. I think when we were doing the Space Dungeon Field Report last time, my cameraman, Henry, was trying to get me something about the game, if I remember this correctly, made him think of Doom, uh, the iconic uh, 90s, I guess, first-person shooter. All of us of a certain age played Doom, right? It was a good game, awesome game. And and Henry is somewhat familiar with it. I don't know if he's ever played it, but... He, he has some familiarity that it's a thing that exists. So he was trying to get me to play Doom, like for some sort of special event. Maybe the next, uh, he mentioned uh, the next time I do a 100-episode celebration, uh, which I just did for 300, so we've got another 95 episodes before I get to 400, and uh, so that may be a while. So I, I said, well, okay, maybe for some sort of a bonus or something at some point. So apparently Kim is jumping on the Doom bandwagon. I kind of feel sometimes like the world is on a Doom bandwagon, but... That's an entirely different thing. But Kim is apparently on the bandwagon that uh, I should do Doom for the podcast. Doesn't really fit into the uh, you know the, the overall concept of playing Atari games, so I'm not quite sure how I would do that. My next thought, of course, is it's my show. I can do whatever damn thing I want. So I, I'm not ruling it out. I will, uh, I'll take it to management. You know, at the next production meeting with the uh, production team, we'll uh, we'll sit down and we'll discuss possibility of playing doom for my atari podcast and uh you know watch this space for future announcements and as i said thanks for sending a voicemail all of you people out there whether it's whether you're on the doom bandwagon or not 563-265-1978 send me some voicemails if nothing else it's a few seconds of the show when you don't have to listen to me so keep that in mind all right let's get on to this week's game this week's game is kicks for the 5200 which I believe was a 1981 Taito arcade game ported to the various places, including um, the 5200 in 82. It was programmed by the husband and wife team of Randy and Sandy Pfeiffer. I imagine there are other husband and wife programming teams from this era. I can't think of any right now. I'm sure all of you know some, and if you would care to share that, I would be happy to discuss it next time. I just happened to notice somebody in the Atari Age forums actually threw out the question recently, hey, do we know anything about these people? Somebody responded, and I'm not vouching for the accuracy of this information. I'm just repeating what's here. Tix, T-I-X, said that Randy is mainly a sound guy, worked on pinball sound effects before he messed with the arcades, looking for info from my Firepower pinball. I found following credits, and he he has a link here, and he says, I think I read somewhere that he was was responsible for the Electric Yo-Yo Arcade 2. Okay, full disclosure here, I'm literally doing my research right now as we speak. So, this is not going to be an in-depth search by any means. Yeah. Quick uh, scrolling here. Let's see. Sandy Pfeiffer has an IMDB page. Interesting. Known for Kicks, the video game. The Electric Yo-Yo Kicks 2. Interesting. I didn't know there was a Kicks 2. And that's about it. So there you go. I imagine you guys, as I said, know more about the Pfeiffers than I do. So if you would care to share your knowledge with the class, share it with the class. Don't keep it for yourself. Please do. And I will pass that along next time. So, Kicks, we have a very colorful uh, manual here, at least the front page. This weird microphone-looking thing shooting up into space. Actually, it looks more like a mechanical pencil. I guess that's kind of what you're doing, right? You're drawing with a pencil. So maybe that makes some sense. On a field of what kind of looks like a, a, a pinball machine, actually, now that I look at it. So we open up the cover. 
and we get a blank page. Well, not entirely blank. It's got all the, the copyright stuff. Table of contents. And then we're hit with a series of questions. Who is Kix and what are his powers? What can he take? How can he take land that is not his? Where does Kix come from? Most important, how can he be stopped? And then they try to answer their own questions. I hate it when people start telling you things by dropping a bunch of questions and then immediately answering them. Just tell me what the answer to the questions are. How did I know that he was the murderer? Here's how I knew he was the murderer. No, just tell me who did it and how. Anyway, uh, the manual says, He's an erratic eccentric who strikes like lightning. He travels with patrolmen called Sparks, who constantly guard the bordering territories. Kicks moves fast, spreading like an infectious disease. His supernatural powers allow him to clone himself, thus doubling his threat. Your only defense is to trap Kicks and claim your territory. You must use your chromium electronic marker to partition the land, segment by segment. Your plan... You plan your strategy, you calmly start plotting a path from border to border. Then when you least expect it, you encounter an additional threat called the fuse. I'm going to stop here and say that it's really not unexpected because you can see them clearly moving around the edge of the screen. But anyway, it hides and waits until you stop moving. It's not really hiding. You can see it the whole time. Then it travels along your path, crackling all the way. It catches you, ignites, and destroys your marker. Once you start moving again, it stops and anxiously awaits your next moment of hesitation. Now you know what you're up against. You must be quick, steady, and careful to diligently reclaim the seized territory. You cannot be greedy. Use intelligence to outsmart the devious monster. So that's basically it. it this game is Amadar without gorillas or paint rollers. If you'd like to hear my thoughts about Amadar, you're going to have to jump in your time machine and go way back. I mean, way back. You're listening to episode 305 right now. If you want to hear, hear me talk about Amadar, you got to go back to episode 14 which dropped on April 24th, 2016. Wow. Holy crap. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm recording this podcast on April 24th, 2022. Amadar, a very similar game, dropped on April 24th, 2016, exactly six years ago. How cool is that? I grumbled about Amadar many episodes after that, but my actual focus on that game is in that episode, episode 14. So go check that out. That's very cool. I didn't realize that. Yay me. So, the object of the game is to use your marker to partition off segments of the screen. You have to avoid the kicks, the sparks, the super sparks, and the dreaded fuse. Complete the screen, you have to reach or exceed a threshold percentage that you're given at the top of the screen. It tells you, like, 65%. you got to fill in 65% before you get killed, before you run out of lives. The kicks roams around erratically, although he gets smarter, apparently, every level. Once you complete a level, you come to the next level, and he's slightly less random. And then there's another level where there's two of them. And then as you go along, they get less random and more more intentional in trying to get you. The diamond-shaped marker that you use is drawing lines that are called sticks. I don't know why they can't just call them lines. When you enclose a segment, the lines, the lines become your new bordering territory. You control the marker with your joystick and fire button by drawing fast or slow lines. There were times when I was playing this this morning that I would be drawing slow lines and times I would be drawing fast lines, and I have no idea. I was, how I was doing one versus the other. An area claimed by fast draws filled with blue. An area claimed with slow draws fills in brown. Colors may vary on different television sets. On my set, they were blue and brown. Oh, side note. I didn't mention this in the field report. For anyone who cares, which is none of you, but I'll say it anyway, you'll notice possibly in the field report that the screen that I'm playing on is different. The monolith of a TV that I had been playing on, which was about, oh gosh, 16 or 17 years old, this giant hulk of a, uh, an electronic item appears to have given up the ghost. Went to turn it on the other day, 
and nothing happened. It is a it is from that era, like I say, 16 years ago or so, when flat screens were a big thing. Like, holy cow, a flat screen TV, but not a flat panel TV. The TV itself was still that huge box. It's just that the front of the screen wasn't curved. It was flat. And, oh my God, this is amazing. And, honestly, the only re- reason we never got rid of it because is because it is so damn heavy. So, because it was sitting there taking up space anyway, when I started doing the podcast, I figured, okay, I'll use this thing. So, I, I have been since the podcast started, but now it appears to have died. So, now I am using my an old TV that my wife had, which is maybe, I don't know, a 12-inch screen? Maybe a little bigger than that, I'm not sure, but not much. Not a flat screen. It is The TV itself is probably 25 years old, uh, and it works great. doesn't take up that much room. The screen itself is closer. It's not as old as the TVs when we were kids in the 80s playing these games, but it's closer, and it works great. So I'm doing that now, and you may notice that the picture's different. So what was I talking about? A strategy is a key element in the game, according to the manual. An important, an important point to remember is that you cannot destroy kicks, but you can outsmart it. Helpful to familiarize yourself with the elements of the game, which again are kicks, who's the main opponent, and as I said, each level, each screen that you complete, kicks gets a little bit smarter and better able to uh, track you. The sparks are two yellow, two red and yellow sparks appear at the beginning of the skilled game variation, each traveling opposite directions from the top of the screen. The right sparks and the left sparks each have their own unique characteristics to eventually become super sparks, which venture onto the sticks that you've drawn. In the order that you drew them, if a sparks touches you, you lose a life, but a sparks cannot be destroyed. A red timeline is located at the top of the screen. As time passes, it decreases in length with different time settings. For each game variation, when it runs out of time, a new timeline and two new sparks appear at the top of the screen. The maximum number of sparks is four. If the timeline runs out again, a signal sounds and the sparks becomes blue and yellow super sparks. Super sparks are more vicious and travel faster than regular sparks. They home in on your marker, making a beeline for your sticks with the intent to destroy it. Once you've drawn segments off the screen border, you can't return to that section of the border, nor can you stop drawing. As soon as you stop, a fuse appears where your sticks began. The fuse crackles as it moves toward your marker. If the fuse reaches your marker, you lose a life. To stop the fuse in its tracks, press the fire button and start drawing again. If you stop again, the fuse reignites where it last stopped. To draw sticks, use your marker, which is located at the bottom of the screen. You can draw only co- any combination of lines. Once a segment is partitioned off, you score points and the area claimed is yours. The manual talks about keypad overlays being included for your convenience. I have a cartridge, but I don't have the overlays. My reading of the manual here is... I don't really know why you need it. I don't think in this manual they even show you what the overlay looks like. So no loss there. Oh, I take it back. They do show you the overlay, which is literally just blank rectangles corresponding where the buttons are on your controller. I don't really understand why you need this, but anyway. When you're ready to begin playing, press reset and a game selection screen appears. Press the right star key, not star key, the right um, number symbol key. What am I trying to say? Hashtag? Yeah, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. To choose a one or two player game, uh, the screen 
displays the message players 1 or player 2. Press the left star key to select your desired game variation. Novice, skilled, advanced, or expert. Press start to play. Press pause to suspend play. You can reset the game. Use your joystick to move your marker around the screen border. Press the fire button while moving the joystick up, down, left, or right to move your marker off the border. Press the top fire button to draw slow. Press the lower fire button to draw fast. Oh, that's what I was doing apparently. If I had read the manual before I played, that might have helped. The slow draw scores double points. Changing fire buttons before completing a segment scores the same points as fast draw. I noted that there are different variations. Basically just affects the speed that kicks moves. I played primarily today at the skilled level, including in the field report. Scores appear in the upper right corner. The game threshold and percentage you've captured are displayed in the upper left side. The game threshold appears above the percentage of territory that you've captured. Points are scored for the color-filled portion of the segment. Do not score points for the areas covered by sticks. So climb aboard. We'll search for tomorrow. On every shore and I'll try. For example, if you capture 50% of the territory, your score could be 4,971. Bonus points are scored when the percentage of territory captured exceeds the game threshold. Additional bonus points are scheduled or er, scored after two kicks are split. Each game begins with five lives, which are indicated by five brown dots displayed to the right of the score. The white dot indicates which life you are using. A game ends when each player loses all five lives. Uh, they give some strategy suggestions here. There's a tree branch strategy, a triple arena strategy, using fast draw to build two columns, one from the top, one from the bottom, splitting the screen into three vertical rectangles. The quadrant strategy, same idea, but dividing the screen into four parts. The twin kicks strategy, where you start at the bottom of the screen and build the horizontal columns, trying to force both kicks to the top of the screen. Use the slow draw to claim the bottom portion of the screen as you continue up. There's a section to write in your best game scores. Remember when we did that, guys? We were so excited. We had the manual with the page on it that you could write your scores in. You put the date and everything. That was nice being a kid. Uh, then the manual has a nice blank white page. That's nice. Appreciate that. And then the back page of the manual. And that is how you play Kicks from Atari via Taito via Randy and Sandy Pfeiffer. I'm not rich or famous. I'm not a movie star, rock icon, first responder, nurse, doctor, or anybody else whom we all look up to. I'm just a schnook. Just like Bill, I love to tell stories. Unlike Bill, though, I'm not creative enough to write my own, so I just tell my own real-life stories in this book-read-by-the-author-style podcast all about life lessons growing up, and every episode, a segment about music. Music that I love, artists that I admire, and sometimes even my own music. You can find Autobiography of a Schnook on all your favorite podcast suppliers, or you can go to schnookpodcast.com. That's S-C-H-N-O-O-K podcast.com. And I firmly believe the good goes around, and I sincerely hope that Autobiography of a Schnook proves to be some good that goes around your way. Now, of course, you're asking yourself, does Kix have a Wikipedia page? Why, yes. Yes, it does. According to the page, Kix is one of a handful of games made by Taito's American Division, and it was ported to the 5200, the Atari 8-bit family, the Commodore 64, DOS, Amiga, C64, Apple II GS, Game Boy, Nintendo Entertainment System, Atari Lynx. Kix was a commercial hit upon release, in 83, Electronic Games reported that the game exceeded Taito's expectations, quickly rising to be one of the most popular titles of the year. Probably, according to the magazine, because it was unlike any other games at the time. 
specifically its unique premise and gameplay mechanics. But after about a year, popularity declined and the game became largely forgotten. According to Keith Egging, Taito's director of creativity, quote, Kix was conceptually too mystifying for gamers. It was impossible to master, and once the novelty wore off, the game faded. Hmm, bunch of whiners. That's me, not, uh, what's his face? Keith Egging. In Japan, the game was the fifth highest grossing arcade game of 81, and his sets has since been dubbed a sleeper hit. The home conversions have largely received positive reviews. Retrospective coverage of Kicks has also been positive. Kicks 2 Tournament was a version of the original Kicks in 1982 with a new color scheme and awards an extra life when 90% or more of the screen is enclosed. It was released, Twin Kicks rather, was released in 87. No, I'd hit the back. Super Kicks was released in 87. Twin Kicks reached a prototype stage in 95, but never commercially released. A later game, Volified, V-O-L-F-I-E-D, also known as Ultimate Kicks, on Sega Genesis or Kicks Neo on PlayStation was created as an additional sequel to Kicks and also released on several mobile phones. 1990 Game Boy port features intermissions in which Mario is involved in one, seen in a desert wearing Mexican clothing and playing a guitar with a vulture looking on. A remake for Game Boy Color was made in 1999 called Kicks Adventure. Battle Kicks was released for PlayStation in 2002. Taito released a new version of Kicks for Xbox Live and PlayStation Portable. Kicks Plus Plus in December of 2009. FreezeNet.com writes that the general idea of this game is risk and reward. Creating massive objects will net you huge points. Problem is that you are at a general higher risk of getting killed in the process. Meanwhile, creating small objects will help you in your quest to stay alive. The downside is that the objects don't net you much in the way of points. How much you are willing to risk is purely up to you. Despite the game's simplicity, it's more than possible to formulate some interesting strategies. The game looks far less fun than it really is. I honestly saw screenshots of the gameplay itself and didn't think the game was going to be all that great. I mean, drawing boxes? How could that even be be fun? But people said this was a great game, so I worried that this was going to be another highly overrated game. But when I sat down to play it, I was generally surprised at how good it really was. The biggest flaw, however, is is how the game distinguishes between player-controlled space and uncontrolled space. Sometimes it's possible to accidentally wander out onto unclaimed territory by a pixel or two. Without knowing it, you can stop and suddenly just die while you're waiting for your next attempt to claim territory. Good news uh, is that, uh, as far as graphics, is that the pixels are fairly large and can be seen without much squinting. Bad news that, is that the enemy markers are next to impossible to see. I agree. With a flicker rate so low, it's almost impossible to see via peripheral vision as you are staring into black areas. Instead, you have to resort to occasionally scanning the perimeter to see if they are approaching. Good news is that movement is predictable, but that's about it. Sound is decent. Overall, the game really doesn't look all that interesting on first blush. But once you actually play it, the game is not only surprisingly good, but also surprisingly addicting. The video game critic gave the game an A- rating, still one of the best home versions of Kicks I've ever played. I've always liked this game because there's nothing else like it. I disagree, uh, video game critic. Amadar is exactly this game, except with gorillas. Atari HQ says that Kicks may not have had the legs necessary to succeed as an arcade game, but it nonetheless represents everything that a good coin-op should be. Futuristic graphics and a fair dose of strategy necessary to become competent. Like Ladybug Venture and Space Dungeon, sorry, Space Dungeon. Kicks is exactly the sort of game that just aches for home translation, where gamers get the chance to sit down and learn the types of tactics and skill necessary to conquer it without the annoying need to dump token after token into a 100 coin out machine. Uh, I think I agree. I've never played Kicks in the arcade, but yeah, this is a game that rewards taking the time to uh, figure all that out, and you're not going to do that if you have, you know, $5 worth of tokens and you have to spread them around. And you're killing time anyway, because your favorite game is being hogged by that jerk 
that you've never liked anyway, so you don't want to burn all your tokens on kicks before you can play, uh, I don't know, Street Fighter or something. The fun doesn't begin until the higher levels. The game then throws you a curve by sending out a second sticks. Either continue playing as before, attempting to elude the twin killers, or work at drawing a line so as to split the pair by dividing the playfield. The 5200 kicks is a tremendous coin-op translation, also evidence that the super system is not just merely an 800 without the keyboard. 5200 kicks is faster, point totals are counted with high speech precision, and boxes once constructed are colored in instantaneously, unlike its 8-bit counterpart. Furthermore, the Atari computer version does not have the luxury of two-button control, thereby eliminating the strategy element of faster on slow draw which I didn't need, because I didn't even realize it. Not to bright or anything. As always, if you guys have opinions about kicks, or anything, shout them out to me. In a voicemail, if you like, or hit me up on social media. Before we get on to the field report, I did notice one other thing I thought I would mention here. Uh, as you know, this is my only, uh, only my second episode with the 5200. I'm still learning the system, still figuring out what it is, what's great about it, what's not so great about it. So I saw this article called from thegamer.com called Atari 5200, the 10 best games on Atari's least popular console. This was posted in February of this year. It would be an understatement, according to the article, to say Atari did nothing but flop after the 2600. One after the other, they released lackluster consoles or decent consoles that couldn't stand up next to their competitors of the time. 5200 is considered their most miserable blunder amongst these failed consoles. It was humongous, which it is, I agree. Confusing the setup came with one of the worst, most fragile controllers ever to grace the homes of gamers. I gotta admit, the controllers are, are not great, but I actually like them a lot more than the 7800 controllers, but that's just me. With the 5200 and the ET game releasing within a month of each other, it's safe to say this was the beginning of Atari's downfall as a game in Colossus. Well, that's debatable and not really the point of mentioning this article. But, in spite of its infamous hardware, the 5200 did have a solid library of games. And here's this writer's opinion on what the 10 best are. I'll go through this quickly because there's a lot of these games I don't know anything about, and uh, I'm sure you guys will have opinions. So, number 10 is called Fractalus, a little-known game widely innovative for its time. A first-person game, another rarity for 1985, piloting a spacecraft and attempting to rescue your fellow pilots. Number 9 is Gremlins, a completely different experience to the 2600 game based on the same hit holiday movie from 84. A fun concept and one of the few licensed video games that isn't regarded as a dumpster fire. Number 8 is Hero, H-E-R-O. Stands for Helicopter Emergency Rescue Operation, which I believe I played for either the 50, 2600 or 7800. A very early example of a game that brings a sense of scale and adventure through its level design and graphics. Mega Mania. Oh, long-time listeners of the podcast know that I absolutely love Mega Mania. It was my game. I was good at a handful of games on the 2600 as a kid, but Mega Mania was the game for me that would make other people leave the room rather than play because they knew if it was my turn... I was going to be sitting there a very long time. I don't know what it was about Made of Mania, but that was my game. I did not know there was a 5200 Made of Mania. I may have to check that out. Number six is Moon Patrol. Five is Space Dungeon, which we've done on the podcast, of course. Ball Blazer at number four, which I still have to give another chance to, because uh, people raved about Ball Blazer, and you'll know that when I did it on the podcast, I was not that enthusiastic about it. Pango at number three. The Dead Knot Factor. Dreadnought Factor, rather, at number two, wins the award of having the coolest name of any Atari 5200 game. On top of that, it's also another highly innovative game on this list. One of the first top-down space shooters, or shoot-em-ups, from before the genre exploded with popularity with popularity in the late later 80s and early 90s. And number one for this reviewer is Kicks. 
the all-time classic of the 5200, a unique style that to this day has seldom been replicated by any other game, very artistic puzzle game, and where many 5200 games went under the radar of how, because of how poorly the console was received, Kix is regarded to this day as a puzzle game classic. Alright, well, there's clearly some games on here I need to look for. The 5200 games I have right now, and I have several, thanks to uh, uh, some of you listeners, including Jose, and some that I bought, actually, when I bought my ill-fated first 5200 console. But other than Kicks and Space Dungeon, I don't think I have any of these, so I may have to check those out. All right, well, we can't be dawdling here. We have to move quick, or Kicks. So after the break, we go Kicksly to the field report. Henry? Kicks! We have to go now! Oh wait, I meant quick. We have to go now and play Kicks. Are you excited, Henry? Are you ready to do this quick kick sleep? Alright, I'll stop the Kicks uh, puns. So, I don't know if that's really a pun. Anyway, we're playing Kicks for the 5200 uh, 1982 port of the Taito arcade game. Basically, it's Amadar without any gorillas. So, uh, with that disappointing uh, caveat, let's, uh, let's take a look. I believe I'm set on the skilled level, so we'll see what happens. Here we go. Here's before I finish the box. Still scary. Uh, look, the game is pretty basic. It's just filling boxes. I guess there's some strategy involved. Yeah. 
sounds are basic, but scary lightning sound, thunder sound, whatever that is. to 65%. So close. That's the story of my life. The story of this podcast. Back to you in the studio. Hey Atari fans, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Join Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review cartridge-based games for the Atari's last answer, the 8-bit gaming system, as well as delve deep into their history. Kieran will also introduce everyone to the UK's budget games. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. Second Duck on the Right and Other Very Short Stories is my new short story collection. Duck con artists, zombies... Things on fire, supervillain angst, and a future without poop are just a few of the topics in these stories. Also, the occasional really bad poem. Waddle on over to your favorite bookseller, or swim downstream to my website, carnivalofgleecreations.com, for more information. Insert quacking up joke here. So, here's the thing about kicks for the 5200. I agree with everything that I've already said and what those other reviewers said. When you hear the the, the, uh, description of what this game is and you look at a picture of it, you're like, really? There's no gorillas in this. Why would I enjoy this? But when you play it, it is pretty addictive. Like all good games of this type. You know, like uh, Tetris, for example. Someone describes Tetris to you, you're like, that sounds dumb. But when you sit there and play it, suddenly four hours have gone by. Uh, And this is one of those kind of games. So, big credit for that. I uh, I will happily continue to play this game from time to time, and uh, I am glad that uh, that I have it. And of course, replayability, really the greatest uh, indicator that it's a good game. So, if you guys have thoughts about kicks or anything, let me know. It's story time. Bites. Yes, it's story, 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 story time with Bill. This episode's story is called Kicks Sand. Kicks, Q-I-X, was the newest gas station convenience store in this end of town. There was another place that sold stale coffee and even more stale candy bars and little bags of peanuts and gas. And there was another place that was strictly a gas station though it hardly qualified even as that with all of the broken pumps. So Kix was the new purveyor of gas, vehicular and intestinal. Kix management prided itself on a business model of being not just quick with a U, fast in the normal sense, but also kick, Q-I-K, with no U, and then dumping out the K for an X, which signified, well, they didn't really know, but it looked cool. Kix was committed to getting the customer on her way, with gas for her car, and a good breakfast in her belly. 
The Kicks people wanted every visit to their store to be memorable in the sense that the trip was so effortless there was nothing to remember. Olivia, the newest administrative assistant at Multicorp Limited, gingerly carried her zero-sugar soda, three-for-a-dollar cookies, and an audiobook of a Daniel Steele novel on actual CD to the checkout counter, using a hand-picked box of a dozen pumpkin cinnamon rolls and another box with a dozen apple fritters as trays to hold her other purchases. It was Olivia's day to bring treats to the morning meeting, and she was going to crush it. Her pastry selection was awesome. Her suit was amazing. The office was a short 15 minutes from here, plenty of time to arrive and get the goods in place for the meeting if she didn't stop to talk to Carol in purchasing about last night's Ben Franklin Space Squid Hunter episode. Kent, eight-year veteran of Kicks, having transferred over from the West Side store on the promise of a fast track to management, embraced the employee manual and radiated warmth and good cheer as his customers approached. Welcome to Kicks, Kent enthused. Olivia, a focused administrative assistant, nodded, studying the debit card reader as if she'd never seen one before. Kent rang up her items. That'll be $24.98, he said. Olivia inserted her card into the chip reader with the precision of a samurai. Transaction completed, Kent smiled and said, thanks for shopping at Kicks. Have a good one. Olivia started to gather her purchases, then cocked her head at Kent as she realized something. She assumed her administrative assistant stance, deferential but professional, and said, you didn't say the thing. Kent smiled again. Kent was a smiley dude. That part of the employee manual was easy for Kent. He'd be an assistant manager in two, three years tops. What thing? He asked. You're supposed to tell me that I can get two for one Reese's or four brownies for two bucks or something. Oh yeah. Kent leaned forward over the counter to see what overstocked items were parked in front of the cash register. Well, I see we've got $1.99 crawler packs. Those look tasty. No, I don't think so, Olivia said. It's too late. I already put my card away. Kent shrugged, ready to move on. But thank you for your thoroughness. I might have bought, Olivia said, if you had mentioned the sale item before concluding the transaction. Kent still smiled, but faltered a bit. The customer was always right, he supposed. You can still buy one, he pointed out, helpfully. The capitalist response to everything, said Gertie, Kent's co-worker at the counter today at the counter today. You bought stuff. Here, buy more stuff. Gertie was seeth the bones through the skin thin with oversized glasses, oversized glasses and a useless scrunchie in her tangled hair. She turned to a customer wearing flip-flops and a t-shirt with a picture of a duck with its wings over its head and the caption, duck, exclamation point. She told the man, check out the half-price sale on duct tape. Duck man guffawed unnecessarily and paid for his items with a credit card that has ex-girlfriend's name on it. Gertie noted the name when she had to lean over the counter to see if the card reader was updating. It had been glitchy. Then the man left the store unimpeded. Not her problem, Gertie reasoned. Kent smiled again. Capitalism is what we do, Gerd. What do you think we're doing here? I'm here because I still owe a shit ton on student loans, Gertie said. Another scam against the masses. Um... Can I have my receipt? Olivia said. I'm late for a work meeting. I'm bringing the cinnamon rolls. It wasn't bad enough. The Russian czars hated educating the masses, Gertie said. After the revolution, the masses were victimized again by the banks. Education should be free. Yo, you know we aren't in Russia, right? Kent said. What's all this Russian czar stuff? The czars are everywhere, Gertie said. You think the pilgrims didn't bring czars to the new world? Olivia couldn't help herself. No, no, I don't. I mean, the pilgrims had issues, but they were not Russian czars. Gertie shook her head. That's what they want you to think. 
Miles Standish was a direct heir to the Russian throne. Uh... As much as Olivia knew this not to be true, she could offer nothing to refute it. John Alden hatched a scheme with Tsar Nicholas to create a Russian colony in the New World, Gertie said, as more Kick's customers formed a heavily sighing queue behind Olivia. Actually, when the pilgrims landed in 1620 in what would become America, Michael Romanov, not Nicholas, was on the Russian throne, Olivia said helpfully. Whatever, Gertie said. The pilgrims were supposed to convert the Native Americans to the Russian Orthodox Church, Russia being a in a bit of a turmoil at the time. We might all be speaking Russian now if it had worked out. There was a beat as the assembled customers stared at Gertie. It didn't, she said. Work out. Kent turned back to Olivia. So, you gonna buy some crawlers, my friend? Olivia caved. She selected a package of crawlers, and as Gertie shook her head in dismay, Olivia ran her card through the machine several times as Kent's reader was now glitching. Exiting the store, finally, Olivia dropped the box of fritters. She considered going on with just the cinnamon buns, but would that be enough? A good administrative assistant wouldn't leave anything to chance. She went back in and bought another box. Gertie also had thoughts about the French Revolution and snickerdoodles, so the purchase took some time. The pastries Olivia brought to the office went over big, but she was fired for being late. Hiring Olivia to work at Kicks was the first official act of new assistant manager Kent. He kind of felt like he owed her. Gertie couldn't care less. Hi, this is 8-Bit Rocket, Jeff Fulton, from the Into the Vertical Blank Generation Atari podcast. And you are listening to the incomparable William Pepper and his wonderful stories of the game within a game on the Atari Bytes podcast. When you are done here, come visit us in the Vertical Blank. Now, back to Bill. And that's our show. Huge thanks to Kevin McLeod and Competech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, Pinball Spring. Thanks to Sean Tortney for the storytime theme. Kicks. Head over to Apple Podcasts Kicksly and leave a Kicks five-star review of this podcast and how Kicks it feels like it moves when you're listening to it. Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at AtariBytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. And then check us out on Instagram. You can also, I may have mentioned this once or twice, leave us a voicemail as well. 563-265-1978. I am dying to hear from you. Check out the website, carnivalofgleecreations.com, for information and links to this show, my other show, it's a podcast, Charlie Brown, and info and links to places, just a few of the places, in fact, that you can buy books that I've written, including Second Duck on the Right and other very short stories featuring short stories you have heard on this very podcast. Also, consider supporting the show financially by helping us out over on the Atari Bytes Patreon page. Over there at patreon.com, link in the show notes. Um, and if you do so, you join a very exclusive club with these fine folks who have my eternal gratitude. Michael Tyler, Jose Gazeta, Sean Courtney, M. West, Patrick McCarthy, Jeremy L., Mark Super, and Jim Goebel. Thanks to one and all. All right, all that's left now is to tell you next time on Atari Bytes. I've had fun with the 5200. I had some fun with the 7800 before that, but I kind of feel like we need to get back to the 2600, the, the console that started this podcast. Uh, don't worry, the 5200 and 7800 will be back, but uh, I think it is time to go back to the 2600 with what I understand is a very popular game that I have never played. So we'll see how that goes. And it's called Sinistar. Will I love it as much as everybody else, or will I absolutely hate it? 
will I hate it because it's genuinely contemptible and all you lovers are crazy? Or will I hate it because I feel compelled to hate something that a lot of people like? Or will I love the game too? Or will I just think it, eh, it's okay? I don't know. And you don't know either. Let's all find out together in episode 306, Sinistar. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.